morning comes from Genesis chapter 2, as we continue this two-part reflection on uh, worship and good things to do and consider for worship. Uh, So Genesis 2, verses 4 through the end of the chapter, let's stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. This is God's word. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good. That the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens. And to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So far the reading of God's holy word. We give thanks for it. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of scripture, let us pray for God's help. Oh Lord, God, we are glad that you are such a rich and giving Lord, that you since creation have fed your covenant people in special ways. And as we come to consider that today, we pray that you might bless our reflections, help us to see the richness of your word and how You demonstrate the fact that you feed our souls by giving us food for our mouths. Lord God, our hearts are easily tumultuous. When our hearts are the boat and the waves and winds are our temptations and even sins that buffet us, so help us to be quick to rush to rouse Christ. That we might know settledness and peace. You be at work to knit unity that is so deep and meaningful among brothers and sisters for your church. Speak powerfully through your word. Make it effective to each of us. Grow us. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are real. And we need you to do your work through your word. Bless the reading and preaching of scripture to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. We ask it all for the precious sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I know that I have let the tone of my voice uh, go too far afield. If Sarah gives me a specific look, And says, are you getting hungry? (laughs) The word for getting out of sorts when we need food is hangry. A a combination of hungry and angry. And the reality is that a a lack of nourishment negatively affects our demeanor, efficiency, and well-being. At the minor level, we just don't always have balanced reactions. Uh, we, we respond with frustration to, to things that really shouldn't make us angry, but, but we've started on the wrong foot already out of place because we need food. Food encapsulates, really, our condition as dependent creatures needing nourishment from outside ourselves. And so God gives his people food. God has always, as we will see, used food to demonstrate his special place of dwelling with his people. In the new covenant, the Lord's Supper is a celebration. Marking how God gives grace to those who depend on the Lord Jesus. 
It is a concrete, tangible enactment of how God provides all the nourishment that we need to walk with him. And today, I want to unpack the connection between God's presence and food as a basis for why it is important to eat God's meal frequently as his people. And then I want to respond to some anticipated reservations about weekly communion. And finally, I want to reflect pastorally on on what it might mean to, to see this different way of doing things than we do now. So our main point is that the Lord's Supper is important enough to eat often as an expression of our communion with God. The Lord's Supper is important enough to eat often as an expression of our communion with God. And today our three points are temple food, two reservations, and triumphal eating. So first, let's think about temple food. So the whole, the whole Bible, as, as we're about to, to think about, relates food to the enjoyment of God's special presence. God's people have always been meant to experience God's special presence joined with food. In, in Genesis 2, verses 4 to 17, uh, God builds the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, as in verses 5 to 8, God made Adam, interestingly, I think, uh, God made Adam somewhere and then moved him into the garden. And this special garden had two designated trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, both serving special roles in Adam's life and covenant with God. Uh, now, despite maybe its appearances, this description of Eden uh, is actually really fascinating. It, it marks it, on the one hand, certainly as a, as a real place somewhere, although perhaps too many have been quick to, to bring out their maps to try to find it. Uh, but more importantly, this description marks Eden's function. So, for example, we see all of these rivers surrounding it, four major rivers. It's in a place of abundant flowing water. Well, Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12, marks uh, or, or shows us that abundant water was associated with God's temple. The, the temple is a place of lots of flowing water. Okay, well, again, the, the gemstones named here in this passage, well, they were used to help build special parts of Israel's temple. So in Exodus 28, 6-10, the, the priestly garments were made of gold and onyx. Right? And so we find gold, lots of gold that apparently was good uh, near Eden and onyx. Now think about it this way. What, what's, what's the point here? So uh, imagine you might ask me, this is hypothetical, I didn't do this, but um, ask me what I did on, on Friday night. And I said, well, I went to this place that said live music on the marquee. 
And I went inside, and this room was dark, except for lots of lights on the stage. And there were some musicians that played songs for a while. And you're probably going to reply at this point. I mean, so you went to a concert. Now, you'd be right. I described a concert without naming it. And given all, and the point is, that given all the materials that Moses named in Eden, that also appear in Israel's temple, right? Israelites would read Moses' description of the garden and say, God built a temple. Moses described a temple without naming it. And of course, temples have always been the place of God's special presence. Pause, though. Let's, let's take one step back. Because this creation temple was a garden. And gardens grow food. Which God highlights in verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And then notes the special tree from which Adam was not to eat. The place of of God's presence from the time he made us to glorify and enjoy him forever. Was a place where we ate. Where there was food. Adam sinned and lost our communion with God. And in mercy, God made the covenant of grace to save his people in Jesus Christ. But he still dwelled specially in a temple. Right? During the Mosaic covenant, God was specially present in the Jerusalem temple. And then we read in Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9, how God taught about the the bread of the presence. And the priests were to set 12 loaves, symbolic of, of the 12 tribes of Israel, quote, on a table of pure gold, noting our connection to gold and Eden, before the Lord. And so God's, Direct presence with his covenant people was again marked by food. Notably, Leviticus 24.8. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it, these loaves of the bread of the presence, before the Lord regularly. John Calvin commented, this was no ordinary symbol of God's favor when he descended familiarly to them, as if he were their messmate, their table companion, right? And thus he made known his special favor in this food, as if coming to banquet with them. In in the New Covenant, God still has a temple, but just not of brick and mortar, Right? Ephesians 2, 19-21. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The church, as the assembly of, of God's 
people gathered in the name of Christ, well, that is now God's temple. Here, this moment, not the walls that stand after we leave, but these moments between call to worship and benediction. This is the temple of God. And our special food is the Lord's Supper. Aaron arranged the food of God's presence every Sabbath. And Paul criticized in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 11.20, he criticized the Corinthians, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now think about his criticism there for a moment. Because his critique, their problem wasn't that when they had the supper, it was wrong. That's not what he said. His, his critique is, so the phrase, when you come together, throughout the New Testament, regularly refers to the church's weekly gatherings. And that means that their problem was that their weekly assemblies didn't include the Lord's Supper. But in their case, it wasn't because they weren't trying. They were just failing. Acts 2.42 summarizes the, the practice of the apostolic era. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Christ's disciples, direct disciples, enacted a congregational life that included devotion to the word, the gathered assembly, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. The, the apostolic pattern of church life included devotion to the sacrament, regularly repeating the practice of the sacrament, meaning committed, frequent, meaningful celebration of the Lord's Supper. I think in our modern era, too many see the supper as, as a bare memorial, right? And usually memorial in the sense of funeral rite. And not as the tangible presentation of the gospel. In the Old Testament, covenantal meals marked the acceptance of a sacrifice, celebrating peace between two parties, now, our, our repeated meal looks back to Christ's once and for all sacrifice on the cross and his whole life offered in our stead. And this is a meal of celebration because since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A meal marking the fact that God welcomes us to his table. Temple food facilitates fellowship between God and his people. Now the next thing I want to do is, so our next point is two reservations. And I just want to see if we can think through kind of the, the two things I anticipate weighing on people most. Now the first one is that some might fear weekly communion seems too Roman Catholic. I, and, now, and the thing is, uh, I don't have a way to dance around this, that this fear rests on some mistaken assumptions. 
some factual errors. I don't like listing facts in the pulpit, but I don't know how else to do this. Um, So since 1215 A.D., so a long time ago, the official Roman position taken at the Fourth Lateran Council has been that people must receive communion once a year. Once a year. In fact, it was Pope Zephyrinus who reportedly decreed to stop frequent observance of the Lord's Supper. Only since Vatican II, which was in the 1960s, some of you may remember it, uh, only since then has Rome focused on weekly Mass. Right, still, the practice of offering a, a Mass in their system is not the same thing as receiving communion. The most recent stats showed that American Roman Catholics attending Mass weekly. So, the, so this is a percentage of people who go every week. Only 43% of them take the supper. So the Roman practice of, of the priest supposedly offering the sacrifice of the Mass is not the same as attendees receiving the elements every week. And we can think from our side, though, that's kind of a list of things, but John Calvin responded actually really forcefully to to Rome's position of infrequent communion without, yeah, I I don't necessarily want to endorse his rhetoric here, but but I think it's good to see how strongly Calvin came down. He, He wrote that infrequent communion was a veritable invention of the devil which he saw as involved in enabling laxity in the Christian life. Reflecting on Acts 2.42, Calvin wrote, Thus it became the unvarying rule that no meeting of the church should take place without the word, prayers, partaking of the supper, and almsgiving. And that's, that's an interesting thing that he says, Every meeting of the church, because you have to remember in Geneva, Calvin preached weekday sermons. So Calvin is essentially envisioning not that many days of the week where Christians didn't receive the Lord's Supper. But ever the pastor, Calvin connected this, this idea, this practice that he wanted to Christian comfort, desiring that, quote, the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ be in use at least once every Sunday, when the congregation is assembled, in view of the great comfort which the faithful receive from it, as well as the fruit of all sorts which it produces. So Calvin's direct refutation to Rome's position was really frequent communion, which he, which he didn't achieve because Geneva's magistrates dictated quarterly observance. Right, leave it to politicians to kill the church's party. Now, um, on another note, right, there's a couple of other practices that Rome still upholds that very few of us object to. And I mean, kind of most basically, almost superficially, Rome reads scripture and has prayers, which we have to do. We might respond that word and prayer are very different for us than Rome. 
but we've seen more reasons than maybe we already knew today, and just the theology we have of the Supper, that that's also true of communion. It's a very different thing for us. But perhaps more, sort of to catching us off guard, the, the varied church calendar is very Roman in principle. Which is why lots of Presbyterians throughout the, the centuries have argued against any holidays except the Lord's Day. And the thing is, I, I've had only one member in all the churches where I've pastored who ob- objected to Christmas. Mass is built into Christmas. Now, I'm not arguing against Christmas. I very contentedly preached a, a Christmas sermon this year, last year. Yeah. But, I'm, but my point isn't to, to stir that, but just to highlight that our consciences aren't pricked by things that are far closer to Rome's heart than weekly communion. Now, the second reservation concerns communion becoming less special. And I think the first thing that I actually need to say is I, I belabored for 13 evenings the ordinary means of grace. I think ordinary means of grace. Our, our confessional standards have no category of special means of grace. And I think on top of that, though, we can, we can further distinguish important from special. Oxygen is vitally important, and we can go only minutes without it. But few think that air is special until they know a deep need for it by experiencing lack. Few skip lunch every day, save once a month just to make lunch more special. We feel it when we go without it because we need it frequently. Drawing on um, a Scottish Presbyterian minister named John Mitchell Mason, who came to the States, one of the ruling elders here in our presbytery, Daryl Hart, noted the negative effects of infrequent communion on our spiritual lives. He wrote, when sessions offer two different rhythms of devotional life, the outward and ordinary cadence of Sabbath observant and the infrequent and extraordinary habit of occasional communion practice, when they do this, is it any wonder that corporate devotional life seems off-key? The efficacious power of the sacrament is is compromised if it falls to the margins of the public worship of God. And I would just note that that efficacy includes binding us together as we see that all come to the Lord's table equally in need of grace. It's not just vertical effects. It's horizontal between us, too. And then I think given that special is actually really highly personal and subjective, I, I find it odd, personally, to prefer the quaint idea of special experience over regularly receiving more of God's means of grace. When we object to receiving the supper, we object to God giving us grace, suggesting that 
we're adequately equipped for the Christian life. I don't need more help. What you've done is fine. Further, when we object to receiving the supper, we, we are practically on the ground, right, asking to receive the penalty of corrective church discipline. Since withholding the supper is the most pointed way of rebuking or excluding unrepentant sinners. If we're not convicted of unrepentant sin, I'm, I'm not sure why we would prefer its penalty more weeks than not. More time in the yard is special for prisoners, but regular access to that freedom and blessing is better. That brings us to our final point. We can move on to happier notes, I hope. Uh, triumphal eating. I don't like to be polemical in the pulpit. Or I don't even know if that's what you... Anyway, you get my point. I didn't enjoy that. That's my point. Triumphal eating. Triumphal eating. I know that change is hard. And that it can send anyone for a really difficult loop. I mean, it was a year ago this week that Scott was born. And uh, <laughs> that, that came with some upheaval uh, to, to the state of affairs in the Perkins home. It, was, it results in great blessings, but it's certainly different. If I can, I, I, uh, I never intend to catch you off guard, and so, so I, I tend to give a preface when, when I think we might need to buckle up uh, for an application. I mean, if, and I don't know that this one is that, but to be direct, you know, it, it was not easy to pack up my family, leave a church that we deeply loved, and move across the world. That was a really hard change. But I, I so I know that change is hard. But it's because of that hard change that I know Hard changes can result in immense blessings. I am so glad that we get to be here with you all. It wouldn't happen just by sticking with what was. And I, I beg God constantly that blessings come not just to us, but to you all. I do worry about that. Um, and so I hope however you feel about weekly communion. I hope that you're praying for rich blessings to result from it. Even if you dislike the idea, right? I, I might even ask you all the more to pray harder that God would bless our church and bless you. Do we seek the Lord for this? Or do we just double down? Rather than anyone worrying, because where does that get us? We should all be praying wildly hard for God's rich and mind-blowing blessings, even that we may not expect or, or want to come in a way that we wish wasn't there. But we should want these blessings upon our church in the next phase of our life as a congregation. You know, far more important to me than the frequency of communion is how Christians disagree. We were just talking in Sunday school uh, about how it, it, it strikes me how it seems every New Testament letter raises the problem of divisions. And this doesn't mean avoiding disagreement in the slightest, but it does affect our conduct within it. 
I, I've felt the need to preach for years on this topic and continued it here. Not, not because I've thought, oh, look at this thing going on. But it's a New Testament emphasis to keep the people of God together. And we have to come to grips in this issue right, with the great variation, the, the differences about the circumstances of communion, and that includes frequency. Circumstances is a category that includes frequency throughout the centuries and across the globe. You know, for whatever reason, this meal of unity often causes the most disruption as we easily rush to fall out over it. It, it struck me harder, even as, as Greg was reading the passage from 1 Corinthians. It opens. There's divisions. And then he comes to talk about the supper. And, and we, we push the button pretty quick on being mad, on rushing to rejection, right? on, on over-criticizing people who disagree about circumstances. Right, even Calvin, we, we heard a quote where even Calvin fell, fray, fell prey to overstating the moral significance of his view about frequency by tying the opposing viewpoint to the devil's work. That's, that's not the way we do it. Not that long after I arrived in London, uh, the session made a change to the distribution of communion that I, I really didn't have much to do with. Um, one family who was, who was well taught in the Dutch Reformed tradition strenuously objected, uh, saying that we were going liberal, which was a new one for me. Uh, and the change was that we were switching from passing around the same shared cup of wine to, using, to having everyone get an individual cup like we do here. Right? And this, this couple saw it as a, as a matter of moral, biblical fidelity and said that the next thing coming would be that we, we'd be supporting the ordination of homosexuals. <laughs> and the rationale was, of course, that they were not used to separate cups and their custom was the only possible position of biblical faithfulness, Right? It can't be otherwise. This is what I know. This is what I like. God has to endorse this alone. Satan loves to make us miserable at the family banquet. I hope, I hope we work hard at resisting. You know, if nothing else, this gives us an opportunity to really think well about our sanctification as a church. In how we engage matters. I wonder if you noticed the the snag in in the first point about that whole Bible sweep of food marking God's presence. Uh, after Adam sinned, God said in Genesis three, twenty two and twenty three. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also 
of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Notice here that the real penalty for sin wasn't precisely exile from the Garden of Eden. It was to be kept from the special food that happened to be in the Garden of Eden. It was to be kept from the food in the sacred space that that symbolized everlasting life. God exiled Adam from the Garden to keep him from the special food. And then, as Calvin helped us note, the bread of the presence was to be a banquet with the Lord. But God's people couldn't enter the Holy of Holies. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't actually access the bread marking God's own presence. He was behind the veil. Aaron arranged the bread every Sabbath, but kept God's people from going through the veil. Sin's penalty is separation from God marked by being kept from his special food. And so now do we see why Paul would criticize the Corinthians for not having the supper, even though they were trying? Well, he told us why in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Is this not our weekly task? To proclaim the Lord's death. His life, death and resurrection. Would our services not fail to be proper worship. If Christ's gospel is not proclaimed. We are fundamentally about the proclamation of Christ. And his work. And the supper announces the same gospel as the word. So that you hear and hold the gospel message. It is more than just a symbol that this message is something you can also hold. And that it is a, it's not just a symbol, it's also a promise itself that as you hold this bread, you will literally hold Jesus Christ one day as he pulls you out of his grave, out of your grave, and hugs you in his arms. When you hold the body and blood of Christ, it's a pledge. That Jesus will hold you in the resurrection. Along those lines, my former professor Robert Godfrey wrote, I sometimes wonder how it might affect preachers. This is what he brought to us in class. I sometimes wonder how it might affect preachers if every sermon had to end in the Lord's Supper. Would it give a healthy new dimension to the way our sermons develop and conclude? Would it force us back to the central things of the gospel? Might not our church life be strengthened by frequent communion? Jesus tells us the bread of life discourse, right? That we have to eat his body and drink his blood. And I realize that that passage is not about the Lord's Supper, but about what we do by faith. But what a thing that we manifest eating Christ by faith by ending every proclamation of his death with eating his meal. Christ tore the veil in two, welcoming us into the Holy of Holies. Christ 
The second Adam has succeeded where the first Adam failed. And so cleanses our robe to give us right to eat from the tree of life and the new creation. We wait to take a seat at the wedding supper of the Lamb because Christ is in heaven preparing that meal for us at the last day. But as we wait, right, as often as we set his supper on earth, he steps out of the kitchen to give us a bite, to be an appetizer of the feast to come, a down payment on our place to have a full plate as we dine at his table. Our triumphal eating is because where Adam had to earn his way to the tree of life, by his obedience, Christ gives you his meal by grace. Justifying us by his perfect righteousness, cleansing us by his perfect sacrifice. Maybe the church struggles with division and to get along so much in this age because we're hangry. needing spiritual food for our souls. When we find one another difficult, maybe we need to ask one another more often, are you getting hungry? Christ summons us to come hungry and offers grace enough to fill us every time. Let's pray. Father God, we're an amazing people that over the centuries your church have